Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the reality and significance of magic. And I mean magic in the esoteric sense of the word. My guest is Dr. Dean Radin, who is currently the president of the Parapsychological Association. He is the chief scientist at the Institute for Noetic Sciences and is a distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He is also the author of The Conscious Universe, The Scientific Truth of Psychic Phenomena, and Entangled Minds, Extrasensory Experiences in a Quantum Reality, and Supernormal, Science, Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities, and most recently, Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. Once again, this interview is being conducted on Skype, so now I'll switch over to the Skype video. Welcome, Dean. It's a pleasure to be with you. In fact, I've been looking forward to doing this interview for quite a long time, uh, so I'm delighted uh, that you're with me. I know in your book, Real Magic, you start out with a very striking statement that caught my attention, which is that you've been researching magic, the esoteric forms of magic, for 40 years, but it was only in the last year that you realized it. Yeah, that's strange, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I, I guess that was uh, probably a bit overstated in that I always knew there's a relationship between magic and psychic phenomena, but I really never thought of it in that sense. Mm -hmm. we've, we've been trained to ignore magic, but then I thought, well, I don't know, the relationship is so close that it's almost silly to mm -hmm. ignore it. Well, in, in fact, in my experience, parapsychologists, at least certain parapsychologists, have been overtly hostile to the esoteric traditions. They often say we have nothing in common except this weak sigh that we're both interested in, but we use the scientific method, and they obviously do not. Yeah, and they uh, are the people who gave us science as we know it today. So the, the best example I can think of is Francis Bacon, who's probably the father of empiricism, who was very interested in these topics and even wrote about testing of what he called the uh, the force of imagination, mm. which is what we call a psychokinesis today. Yeah. So this is deeply part of both science and psychic phenomena from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Will you report a very striking personal experience that I think really got your attention as, as to the nature of magic? And uh, perhaps you could recount that. You mean the four-part synchronicity? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this, uh, I, I don't know that this is magic or not, because I don't actually know what magic is. For that matter, I don't know what psychic phenomena are either, except that they're, they're, uh, they seem to be related in some way. So the synchronicity is 
that uh, in the year 2000, when we started the Boundary Institute, uh, Dick Schaup and I and a few others, Ed May was there, uh, we were looking for a place to uh, put our offices, and it was the height of the dot-com craze. And so uh, within Silicon Valley, all of the prices and uh, leasing rates were were enormous. So we kept looking further and further away. We ended up in Los Altos, which is the suburbs of Silicon Valley, and found a, a nice office in an office complex and then rented that. So I forget how long it was, but maybe a week or two later, I was looking at the list of other kinds of organizations that were in the same uh the office park, and one of them said uh, PsyQuest, Inc., uh, which I thought was, uh, we all thought was an interesting synchronicity because, after all, we were involved in Psy Research, and this PsyQuest, Inc. didn't say anything about what they did, and they passed uh, the office, and it just said PsyQuest, Inc., and no one was in there. So I had assumed at that point that it meant something like personnel services or something of that sort, PSI. Uh, so then another couple of weeks go by, I walk to the office in a slightly different way, and I notice that the office adjacent to ours is called PsyQuest Labs. And now it was more interesting because what is a personnel services place doing with a laboratory? So again, day after day I'd go past, see nobody was in there, the blinds were closed. About a month later... Finally, I saw that there was somebody in there. I could just see through the blinds and see that there was a man standing at the desk. So I knock on the door. I'm all prepared to introduce myself. The door opens. There's a man standing there, and he put up my hand to, to, to shake his hand, say, hello, I'm, and he finishes the sentence by, by kind of croaking in a, a strange way, Dean Raiden, and yes, I never saw this guy before. I didn't know who he was. Uh, and he he looked like he was in the middle of a stroke. I mean, he really looked quite shocked. Mm. And so I was concerned about this, and I I wasn't quite sure what to do. But after a few minutes, he settled down, and I asked him, "Well, what's what what are you doing here?" And he said, "Well, I'm doing what you're doing. What do you think we're doing? Well, you're doing parapsychology. So you're also doing parapsychology? Yeah. He was." Uh, one of the lead designers on the Apple PowerBook, which was one of their first laptop computers, and they cashed out from Apple and did what he always wanted to do, which, by the way, is what a lot of people would rather do, which is to study psychic phenomena, except that he wanted to do it as a business. It's a for-profit business, and he had the ideas about how to do that. So the reason he was so shocked when he opened the door is because he had been engaged for a month and a Tibetan dream yoga practice where you can manifest what you want. And the practice involves uh, three hours of being awake and then three hours of sleeping, and you continue this cycle for days and days with the idea that during your waking hours, you're consciously trying to manifest the thing that you want, and then you, then you go into your dream state, and the unconscious helps pull it. So what, what was he trying to manifest? Me. He was trying to, to get in touch with me. Now, he didn't expect that I was going to show up at his door, but he did hope that he would find a way to contact me because he wanted me to be on his board of advisors for his business. And at that time, nobody knew. I mean, hardly anybody knew that I was in Silicon Valley, especially not with a new organization out in the suburbs of Silicon Valley. 
So there wasn't any way that somebody could have found where I was. There was maybe five people who knew where we were at the time. So, uh, so I felt uh, somewhat disoriented when he told me that because I thought I had free will uh, to both uh, get that office. It wasn't just my decision. It was the decision of a bunch of us. Uh, and I thought I had free will to go next door and knock on the door. And, you know, the sort of disorientation was the, the notion that somehow he brought me into existence at that time and place because that's what he wanted. So the second part of the story is after he settled down and told me the story and we both recovered from our shock, he said, uh, would you like to see what I have here at the laboratory? I said, sure. So it went in and it saw a fabulously equipped laboratory with a, a large electromagnetically shielded room and inside the shielded room was all kinds of neat equipment including a special leather reclining chair, which is a kind of uh, apparatus I like to have in, in the lab, one of those zero gravity chairs. Uh, so th this was my turn to be shocked because what I had been doing for the prior month in my office, which was adjacent on the adjacent wall to his, his uh, laboratory wall, was drawing on the board the things that I wanted to go into our laboratory, which included most of the stuff that was in his shielded room, including that leather chair. So I had brought into manifestation what I had been thinking about the previous month and didn't know that it was on the other side of the wall from where I happened to be. So this is it's four parts of uh, synchronicity that gets wilder and wilder along the way. And in retrospect, I mean, we, we discussed it at the time. Uh, it, it was kind of shocking. In retrospect, it's almost—it's a little strange that it's not even more shocking. I mean, we were mm -hmm. kind of stunned at the time, but then people have said afterwards, "Well, did did you then create a collaboration?" I mean, you're two people working the same, and the answer was no, we didn't. We were so disoriented by the whole thing that we basically went about our business and we're friendly with each other and would say hello occasionally, but we never collaborated. Hmm. So, this may be what I mentioned in in real magic is. When you're encountering something that is that is really high on the magical scale, it's kind of frightening. It it's if you could it could cause you to even forget that the event took place, uh, and in worst cases you deny that it ever happened. In my case, I'm not denying it, and I certainly didn't forget it. But it it didn't, as I said, in retrospect, it didn't have the effect that you might think it would afterwards. It was more like, oh, that's weird. And then we go around our, our everyday business. Weird is an interesting word. It comes, I think, from the Celtic tradition. And it, I think it's another word that means magical, actually. W-Y-R-D. Yes. Mm -hmm. Actually, the, the origins of the word is fate. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's a, almost a, syn a synonym with fate. But it's it's a magical kind of fate. It's like you're you're you have a certain destiny that is going to play out, and if you notice it, and if you can discern what that destiny is, you can make things happen that look magical, but it actually is just playing out your fate. Mm -hmm. Well, it also seems as if the Jungian notion of synchronicity comes uh, to to the fore here, as well as the concept of psychokinesis. Right. How does something happen? How do you make something happen? I don't know. 
but somehow that's that is what the magical traditions are about mm-hmm. intention can somehow shape probabilities or something like that and uh, cause events to nicely come to pass so you point out in your book that uh, magic of this sort is real it's intermittent it doesn't work a hundred percent of the time and you also point out that there are many different spiritual traditions that uh, post warnings about magic uh, and at the same time various religions that warn people not to mess with magic also engage in magical practices right Every religion that involves prayer is doing a psychokinetic practice, uh, or they're doing a theurgic practice. So if you're praying to give honor to some disembodied and invisible intelligence out there, that's theurgy. Mm-hmm. If you're doing an intercession prayer or an intentional prayer for something to happen, that's psychokinesis. And so you're right that this is part part of the bread and butter of virtually all religions, and even not in a religious context. The whole affirmation genre is exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. So on the negative side, uh, as Jean-Paul Sartre once said, hell is other people, in which case the the moment you, you get the sense that you have power over other people, it becomes extremely seductive, and that seduction makes you Darth Vader. If you do something to override the free will of someone else, that's almost the definition of black magic. And that's what many religious practices and even just esoteric practices remind us that if you try to or succeed in overwhelming somebody's free will, you will pay for it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting to compare the scientific study of parapsychology, which if if we include psychical research, goes back to 1882 with the history of magic itself, which is actually much older, goes back at least to ancient Egypt, maybe four or five thousand years, probably back to shamanism, even even longer. So although the traditions of magic have not, to my knowledge, incorporated the scientific method, at least not very much. Uh, they have a, a an ancient folk tradition, and there is a sense in, in which folkways are like science. You know, when things don't work, they get discarded, and when things do work, they become incorporated into a folk tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would say that even the very mo- the most ancient magical practices within shamanism were still a kind of empiricism. Mm-hmm. And if you, you're working spells or doing rituals and they never seem to do anything, well, you don't keep doing that. So this is not to say that the grimoires, which have thousands of spells in them, that they're all uniformly correct. A lot of them are superstition. Uh, but I would say that not all of them are superstition. And it raises the the possibility, and I haven't done this yet, but it raises the possibility of taking a famous grimoire and actually doing the rituals and seeing what actually happens. So bring it up to date in terms of what we know about scientific methods today and try it. Mm-hmm. Just try it again. Now, in many cases, pretty, most of the spells are benign, but a huge number of spells are actually black magic because they're love potions and money potions and things that would require the world to bow to your wishes in a way that would affect other people. Mm-hmm. And so you may want to go through a grimoire and take the ones that seem relatively benign and work with those and set the other ones aside. 
Well, you also refer in your book to something you call gray magic, and, and specifically, as I recall it, it was what is known as a binding spell. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, the binding spell is the idea that you place a constraint on somebody else so that their actions cannot harm other people. So there are uh, witches and warlocks who are putting binding spells on Donald Trump, for hmm. example to prevent he, him or his administration from harming other people. And then, so this is black magic in the sense that it's directly aimed at somebody else, but for the, the benefit of, of all. So it, it does go somewhere between white and black, so it's gray magic. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I suppose, uh, for people who are students of magic, well, there are many different traditions. There's Egyptian magic and Tibetan magic and uh, magic in, in the Hindu Vedas and uh, Western uh, medieval magic. They all uh, seem to have uh, very extensive lineages and, and literature and history and uh mostly similar, but of course there are differences in each case. Right. And by the way, contemporary practitioners of all of the ones that you just mentioned. Yeah. So the uh, it's true that a, a scholarly overview of magic would, would, the way scholars dive into a topic is to look at the nuances of cultural and history and language and so on between the different methods. But because I'm writing a fairly short book here, and, and I'm not a scholar of magic, what I wanted to concentrate on were the similarities. Mm -hmm. So I, I tend to do a synthesis of roughly 10,000 years worth of, of material, uh, and that's why I... I Oh, vastly oversimplified for, for the purposes of this book. Well, I seem to recall an earlier conversation I must have had with you oh, over a year ago, probably, in, in which you said you really started out to write a book about the scientific method, and it ended up becoming a book about magic. Well, it was always about uh, science and philosophy, mm -hmm. basically, about the assumptions within the scientific worldview. And this was, this book is basically the uh, uh, Western esoteric version of my previous book, Supernormal, which is more about the Eastern esoteric traditions. So this is partially just rounding out the Western and Eastern look at it. But uh, whereas I talked about the cities, as far as Eastern magic goes, uh, in the Western tradition, it's more about what we would call Harry Potter type magic. Mm -hmm. Well, you... Uh, have been doing parapsychology research for a long time. Uh, you've published, I have to say, you're probably up over a hundred published studies at, at this point. And, uh, what can we say about how the findings of parapsychology inform our appreciation of the magical traditions? Well, if you, you categorize magical practice into three types, uh, divination, manifestation, or force of will, and theurgy. And now you cast what we have studied in parapsychology against those, there's the perfect match. Hmm. So divination is all about perception through space and time. Well, we know what that is in sci research. Uh, manifestation or force of will is psychokinesis and poltergeists and things of that sort. And theurgy is studies of mediumship and channeling and near-death experience and that sort of thing. So 
it's not as though there's something left out. Mm-hmm. All of it is contained within the studies that we do. And it's, I think it's more of a, uh, a sociopolitical reason why the handbook of parapsychology in the 21st century, which is a nice snapshot of the state of the art, doesn't have the word magic in the index. It does have an, one article which talks about ancient magical ideas in the context, I think, of shamanism. But it's not a thing. It's like not even a topic that, that we would talk about, probably because we're wearing hats of scientists and scholars, and you don't talk about that stuff. So right. I figured it, it's it's ironic that within a field that has a strong taboo, which prevents people from talking about it, that we have a taboo within the taboo. And I decided I don't like taboos. So that's why I talked about magic. And I know you're getting even today some pushback from other parapsychologists who are very embarrassed uh, that you're bringing up the subject. They think that it's associated with the worst, most pernicious superstitions. Some of it is. It's mm-hmm. true. Uh-huh. But but it's also undeniable that the, the relationship is there. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, would it matter for what we're doing in terms of our the perceived credibility of the field? And I would say it doesn't matter at all mm-hmm. because the perceived credibility of the field from a mainstream academic perspective is that it doesn't have any credibility. So how could you make it any worse? What I'm trying to do is simply, in a sense, raise the scholarship mm-hmm. of uh, to look more carefully about what it is that we think we've been doing and, more importantly, to look for clues within the esoteric traditions as to ways to think about the phenomena that we've been studying. Mm-hmm. Well, th- this brings us into the theoretical area. And uh, there you <clears throat> you raise some very interesting arguments. You suggest that reality as we know it is much more malleable than we tend to think. Well, that is what anything in parapsychology suggests, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, one of the uh, summary statements that one can say about the entire database that we've collected is that uh, there's a relationship between subjective and objective, that they blur into each other. That That's like a one-sentence statement of implications of any kind of psi phenomena. Well, and the same is true of magic. That's basically what it says, too, that the world is malleable, that the subjectivity can in some way interact with objectivity. Mm-hmm. So it's just sci research by a different name. Uh, it, it doesn't have the, the same tools that we can bring in a scientific sense. So the level of confidence about any particular magical practice is not quite as high as what we can say about an, an experimental series. But that the phenomena are basically the same, I think, is is very clear. Mm-hmm. You um, yourself have conducted some very interesting studies looking at this relationship between objectivity and subjectivity uh, involving quantum physical effects. Well, actually, every experiment that, we, that we've done, not just me, but within the field that involves psychokinesis is exactly that. It's, it's looking at how is it that some idea inside of your head is reflected in the behavior of a physical system, which could be a human being, at a distance? That's what it's all about. So, yeah, so I've done that. Many, many colleagues have done the same kinds of experiments. Well, a- actually, in in my experience, it seems as if most parapsychology research has focused in on the perceptual side of uh uh, the equation experiments and psychokinesis seem uh, rare to me. 
I agree that today that is the case, but that is primarily because uh, most of the people doing these studies are psychologists. Mm-hmm. So, so they either don't have interest in the physics side or uh, maybe it wouldn't fit in with what they're doing. Uh, if you go back into the 1970s, there are many more physicists involved in this study, and not surprisingly, they were interested in psychokinesis. Mm-hmm. So I, I, have a, I have training in both of those disciplines, so I flip back and forth depending usually on what the funding mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the double-slit experiments that you've done. Okay. So the the first uh, experiments that used optical systems, uh, uh, both single slit interferometers and double slit, uh, were by um, um, now I'm forgetting his name, Stan Jeffers from York University, uh, and Mike Ibison, who was working at the Pear Lab at the time. So in 1998, they published two studies involving a double slit system. Uh, Stan Jeffers is known as a major skeptic, and he reported no results, and Mike Ibsen was at Payer, and they reported positive results. Mm-hmm. Payer being the Princeton Engineering Anomalies uh, Research Center. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, somewhere around 19, uh, 2008 or so, I, I ran across that paper, and I thought, oh, okay, one of my strategies for doing this, by the way, is that I figured that in order to try to push the envelope into the mainstream, it's not to try to break into the mainstream, but simply push it a little bit, you have to talk the language mm. of, of, the, of the discipline that you're interested in reaching. So I thought, okay, I can do an, an optical physics experiment, and the first one was with a Michelson interferometer, uh, where we would simply see whether you could change the interference pattern by interfering with the optical path mm-hmm. with your mind. Now, we, so, we should talk about why the double slit is significant for that purpose. Right. Well, so, but the uh, Michelson interferometer is essentially the same as a double slit. It's just a different optical configuration. They're both interferometers. So the reason why an interferometer is interesting is because uh, if, you, if you gain information about the path that the photon takes as it goes through the interferometer, whether it's a double slit or Michelson or a Mach Zender or a whole bunch of other methods, mm-hmm. if you know where the photon is going, then it behaves differently than if you don't know. And the knowing part is interesting because it, it's even not that you literally know because you've seen it or you've taken a measurement or something. It's that if you could know in principle, which is very strange. If you could know in principle where the photon goes by the method, by the apparatus arrangement, it behaves differently than if you cannot know in principle. Mm-hmm. So what I'm adding on to this then is to say, if you could know through clairvoyance what the path of a photon is through an interferometer, that should change its behavior. It should no, it should no longer be wave-like. It should be particle-like. Mm-hmm. That, that's what you. That's what physics 101 tells us. Because we're dealing with this fundamental paradox in quantum physics, known as wave-particle duality, where uh, something like an electron or a photon uh, changes its very nature according right. to how the experiment is set up. Right. And so this is not a resolved issue. I mean, there are plenty of people who have opinions about why this happens, but no one really understands it. And the book that I usually recommend when people want to know about this in more detail is uh, is called um, Oh, now Oh, Quantum Enigma. 
Quantum Enigma is a, a good book written by two physics professors on this notion of how is it that somehow consciousness or information or knowing seems to change the behavior of photons or elementary particles. So so the double slit experiment, I, I first did the Michelson and then the double slit because it's considered the most beautiful experiment in physics. Mm-hmm. It's voted as such by members of uh, readers of Physics Today magazine. Uh, and it's it's a very elementary and easy way to demonstrate that somehow knowledge of which path information changes the behavior. So we simply set up a double slit system. I worked with a uh, uh, optoelectronics engineer who very kindly built us the first version of this uh, and it was a fairly small portable device and we started doing experiments where we asked people to imagine that they could see where the photons were going and pretty quickly we were getting results suggesting that the interference pattern was changing in the direction as though the observation the mental observation was so-called collapsing the wave function that was the first idea about what was happening here, because you can point back to people like John von Neumann and many other founders of quantum mechanics who said, yeah, consciousness is unavoidably related in some way to what is happening in the physical world. And you may be able to see that in a double slit apparatus. But after conducting 17 experiments, looking at the with different interferometers, different lasers, different experimental ideas, including one that one series of experiments which use single particles, single photons, uh, it became increasingly clear that it wasn't as simple as observation collapsing the wave function, because if that was the case, you'd only get results that would go in one direction. Namely, you'd, you would only get more results that looked like particles rather than waves. And in many experiments, we did see that, but not all of them. Sometimes we got a reversal, a significant reversal, as, as we see oftentimes, actually, in parapsychological studies, you, you do a study, you think you finally figured it out, you do it again, and you get a significant result in the opposite direction. So this either means that our intentions are not stable, that we, we, we think consciously that we're trying to get a certain result, but unconsciously we're in some kind of self-defeating mode and making it go backwards, that's possible. The other possibility is uh, that especially in the double sit experiments, because we occasionally would get a reversal of the effect, significant reversal, that it was not simply collapse of the wave function. It was much more like we see in other psychokinetic effects, where there's something, there's some influence going on, but it is not stable according to your intention. And even when we ask people who are involved in these experiments, did you keep the same strategy and intention throughout the experiment? And the answer is, well, they tried to, but they couldn't. Because even experienced meditators start going into mind-wandering mode quickly. And so one of the consequences of that is that uh, oftentimes a meditator would say, well, you're trying, you're giving a concentration period of only 10 seconds. That's way too quick. I can't, you know, I can't get into that quickly enough. So I'd rather have like five minutes to kind of concentrate on it. And I said, no, I don't think so. Because we've done studies, these same studies with EEGs, and we can tell that their mind begins to wander within a matter of seconds. Yeah. So do like a, like a major shot of your intention for 10 seconds, sometimes 20 or maybe 30 seconds, 
And that's it. And now stop and relax. So we'll go back and forth between these two conditions in very short bursts, which is something that people generally don't do. So we don't have people who are experts at that. But we do that to try to limit the degree to which people's minds will begin to wander. Mm-hmm. Well, in the esoteric traditions, typically a person will spend months, years usually, practicing various forms of meditation, concentration, visualization, uh, so that by, by the time they're really proficient at, at these things, they have many, many years of uh, practice and trial and error behind them. And, of course, yeah. parapsychology laboratories don't usually work that way. No. The, the only person usually in the laboratory studies that I do who have thousands of hours of practice is me. Mm-hmm. When I bring in other subjects, some of whom may be very experienced meditators, they've never done anything like this. I still find that meditators do better because, better than non-meditators, because at least they have some attention training. Mm -hmm. They can do the task better than somebody who has no training at all. But you're right, that for, especially for focused intention work, very few people actually do that for, for long periods of time as a practice. Where I've, I le- I've learned to do that because I've done so many experiments of this type and I've used myself as subject repeatedly to test the system that I, I kind of have an a s- internal sense of what it even means to do that. So in some of the more, more recent experiments, we're using what amounts to magical tricks to, to try to, to help people do the task. So what I mean by this is we're, we're currently doing an experiment using a plasma ball. These are the these little balls you can buy. That ours is eight inches in diameter and has a nice plasma stream display, and it's used as a decoration. Mm-hmm. We're using it as a PK target. So in, in order to help people concentrate on the task, which is to move the plasma in one direction or the other, we have an effigy plasma ball. It's the same size as the actual ball. It's, it's not turned on. But we ask somebody to try to move the plasma in a certain direction, which you can do if you touch the ball. If you touch the ball, it'll draw the streamers to it. So you touch the effigy ball in the direction that you want to move the plasma streams in the actual target, which is in the next room, actually in our shielded room. This now embodies the task. It's no longer a purely mental task. Now you have to do something. Mm And it's essentially the same idea as in voodoo or as in any kind of magic involving an effigy. Mm-hmm. And we find that even for people who are not particularly practiced in this kind of intention, taking it outside of your head helps the process. And mm-hmm. we're getting interesting results in that experiment. Well, one of the main features of magic is the use of ritual. And ritual can involve words, it can involve music, it can involve costumes, uh, and set and, and, and setting the, uh, magical practices typically, you know, to my understanding, pay a lot of attention to those sorts of details in, in getting results. So, uh, that might be an area. It sounds like you're beginning to explore that with the effigy ball. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've always thought it would be useful to create a kind of ritual, uh, that the subjects would go through. Mm-hmm. But without freaking them out, yeah. right? You're not going to start chanting in ancient Aramaic or something because actually, some people, I live in Northern California, probably people do that anyway. 
Some people uh, would be into it for sure. Yeah, some people would be into it, but I still the I, I view the the scientific experiment as a ritual. Mm-hmm. It already is a ritual. I mean, the the whole process is ritualized in many ways. So, so the effigy is one step in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, other forms of what might be considered minor ritual is that we're we actually are fortunate in that our laboratory is not that easy to get to, right? We're, we're at uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences Earthrise Retreat Center, which on you can a, get to. It's a hilltop. Yeah, it's on the hilltop off the highway and basically in, in the, the transition between Marin and Sonoma counties. Mm-hmm. So you have to do a pilgrimage to get there. Once there... It's not clear where the laboratory is. It's not marked intentionally. So when we bring a subject into the lab, uh, we, we go down a winding path and we go into the basement of somewhere. And we even staff members who have worked at Earthrise, many of them have no idea where the laboratory is. So they, of course, they'd like to do the experiments like anyone else does. And even for them, it becomes a ritual like walking into the forest and finding a secret place, mm-hmm. almost like an ancient alchemical place because it's in the basement. All of that, I think, helps for the, the the theatrical part or the ceremonial part of getting somebody into a different frame of mind in the process of getting ready to do the experiment. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons our experiments tend to work pretty well. Well, one of the intriguing features of parapsychology is that some experimenters, such as yourself, have really good track records, and there are other experimenters who seem to have uh, the opposite effect. Anytime they walk into the laboratory, things stop working. Yeah, which, of course, raises the whole experimenter effect idea. Mm-hmm. I, I think there definitely is something to that. There's something about the interaction with the with the participants I try to take myself out of the picture at least as far as the direct participant and that I, at least for the past 15 years or so, I've had research assistants actually run the subjects. Mm-hmm. I almost never do that anymore. It's partially because I don't have time to do that, but it's also intentionally to keep me as separate as I can get from being accidentally a subject in the experiment itself. Mm-hmm. Now, I know in your book, you also point to certain uh, advances, I'll call them, that are taking place theoretically, such as the uh, writing of Bernardo Castrup, where he's really challenging the whole materialistic metaphysics that most scientists subscribe to and is suggesting that uh, from a philosophical perspective, uh, Bishop Barclay was was correct in, in saying we don't know anything outside of our own consciousness. Everything we know is mediated by our consciousness. Right. All, to... of, all of our scientific facts are inferences. Even ones that we consider to be the hardest of hard facts, they're all inferences that we have to know. And the only way we know is through our awareness. So... As I mentioned before, one of the reasons for looking at the esoteric traditions is that you have 10,000 years of certain ideas. There are practices based on it. Like our, our technologies today are a practice based on the scientific worldview. Mm-hmm. Well, magic is a technology based on an esoteric worldview. Mm-hmm. It's, it's exactly parallel. So if we... 
if we uh, don't simply dismiss the esoteric ideas as ancient superstition, of course, a lot of it is superstition, but maybe not all. What you come come up with and trying to develop a what what are the philosophical assumptions underlying those traditions? It all comes down to consciousness is fundamental. Mm-hmm. That's idealism. So I then take that idea uh, and say, well, let's assume that idealism is correct and apply it to what we know in parapsychology. Does it provide a better way or at least a way of looking at the data and beginning to understand it? And the answer is obviously yes, because if consciousness is fundamental, meaning more fundamental than physics, then suddenly things like psychokinesis and any kind of, of clairvoyance or whatever, they all become obviously correct. Mm-hmm. Or at least they're, they're, they, it's no longer you have to make a plausibility argument because it's built into the assumptions themselves. Mm-hmm. The problem with idealism that people often point out is that it can devolve into solipsism. And, and then nothing is real, basically. And that mm-hmm. doesn't work either. So that's why I came up with this idea of thinking about the scientific worldview as a hierarchy of disciplines with physics on the bottom and things emerge from, from on top of that. And just say, let's continue to use exactly that same set of assumptions so we don't throw away any textbooks, but we expand our assumptions, which is what science has always done. So we're now adding a new layer below physics, and we're going to—we're adding on the esoteric layer of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Somehow, there's some primordial awareness that's simply out there and permeates everything, and from that emerges space and time and everything else that we know. From that perspective, scientific materialism is alive and kicking; it is not going to go away. But it's now seen as a subset of a, lar- a more comprehensive worldview which includes something like idealism as a container of this special case, which we'll call ideal, call materialism. So when you're referring to consciousness in this context, you, you certainly don't mean individual consciousness. Right. Or ego so that's consciousness. I, I, I use the terms of little c and big C mm-hmm. in, in the book to refer to little c as the thing inside your head that you call me, but that is composed of exactly the same stuff as big C, which is the container that holds everything. Mm-hmm. So th- I think this is what, uh, like the, the Hindu phrase of Atman equals Brahman, that's what it's pointing at. And you see that in many different religious texts, that your awareness, your consciousness is a piece of, like a holographic piece of some kind of universal awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's that's how I make the connection. Yeah. yeah. Now, many magical traditions uh, tend to uh, invoke various spiritual entities, uh, demons or uh, deities or spirits or of, of various types, sometimes ancestors. Uh, how do you evaluate those? From a, a materialistic perspective, those ideas are very, very difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking about disembodied intelligences, essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, that almost doesn't make any sense for materialism. What do you mean? There's a disembodied and intelligent? You need a brain to be intelligent, that sort of thing. Whereas if you take an idealistic perspective, then suddenly, because everything has the potential of being aware, because it's all made up out of awareness, then you have a huge range of possible ways that awareness can manifest. Mm. So human embodiment is one form, 
but a giant gas bag out in space could be another form. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the idea of disembodied intelligence is localized intelligences becomes much more plausible. Whether it's star people from Arcturus or whatever, who knows? But at least it, it creates a different way of understanding the entire range of theurgy, which is all about this disembodied spirit thing, in a way that materialism has a very difficult time with. Mm -hmm. uh, another feature of your book is is that you point to certain individuals who seem to have very pronounced psychic abilities, and you suggest that these psychic superstars uh, that are rather rare, but may also be uh, the equivalent of uh, the great so-called magicians or alchemists or magi or astrologers, uh, diviners, and so on in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I use your example of the PK man, mm -hmm. Ted Owens, as a more contemporary version of what looks like a, a real-life Merlin, mm -hmm. able to do large-scale things more or less on demand, whether they're PK or precognition, who, who knows, but big stuff. And they also used uh, St. Joseph of uh, Cupertino as an example of a levitator and D.D. D. Hume as another example of somebody who was able to do amazing stuff with thousands of witnesses. Mm -hmm. So if if you go through the, the whole litany of cases where they're individuals who seem to have really remarkable abilities, it is extremely rare. So it maybe we're talking about one in a hundred million or even one in a billion people but that leaves room over our history that occasionally you'll have somebody who is not just psychic but super psychic in many ways and especially when it, when it comes to the the uh, side perception that's probably not so rare mm -hmm. so i mean there we're talking about maybe one in a thousand or one in ten thousand people who are really talented at it so it's relatively common from that perspective. And most people, even untrained, can get a little bit of evidence, enough to convince themselves. I remember one time I gave a, a workshop in Jamaica, and the, this was mostly composed of, of British people who were going to Jamaica for, um, for vacation for this workshop. And so I, I did a remote viewing uh, exercise where people had to guess what the next picture would be. And so they, they all made a sketch and they drew things. One of the people in the, the group was a very proper British solicitor, so an attorney, but a high-level attorney, attorney in the government. And he did a, a, an okay drawing of, of the thing that was the target. He was just shocked. He couldn't get over it for days. And he kept showing people, look, look, look what I drew, and this is the target. And it's like he had a, a mental breakdown or something. From my perspective, I was thinking, well, yeah, that's sort of normal. People can do that. From his perspective, it was it was transformative. Mm -hmm. So it's not that rare. Whereas these these major figures in history are able to do things like literally levitate. That's pretty rare. That's pretty rare. Yes, indeed. But I suppose one could say, you know, highly developed disciplines such as athletics. Uh, you you have a whole sociological system that that funnels people in, so you're going to get uh, you know great athletic stars, the Michael Jordans of the world, and the 
uh, Tiger Woods and so on are able to rise to the top and everybody uh, can see them and applaud what they do because there's enormous social support for that. But in parapsychology and even in the esoteric arts, uh, I don't think we find that so much. I think this is because uh, when somebody does something that's strongly magical, people initially have have a shock reaction, Mm -hmm. but then they fear it. Yeah, because of the the moment that you have the the idea that somebody can read your mind, you become transparent to them. That's frightening for most people. The moment you have the idea that someone can affect you, like your body or your thoughts or your behavior, that's even more freakish. So most of of these kinds of abilities tend to frighten people, and anyone who has those abilities, even to a relatively minor extent, if they can avoid becoming Darth Vader they learn very quickly to not demonstrate it. Mm-hmm. So this, of course, is part of the at least the magical traditions in the East where you don't talk about the cities. In the West, it's also true that the sorcerers would, would work in secret. Mm-hmm. So part of it was the secrecy protects the nature of the intention, but part of it also is that it is dangerous to be seen as somebody who has these abilities. Well, and it's it's just as true today, I'm sure, as it was in medieval times. We it's only about a little over 200 years since witches were burned at the stake here in the United States, and they still are elsewhere in the world today. Yeah, so it's dangerous. So it, because of people's fear, people's fear, right? So of course, the witch burning is partially a, a social. Uh, issue as well. I'm sure the vast majority of people who were burned as witches were not, in fact, doing anything like that. But the fear element is undeniable. Yeah. So. And in the case that you described at the beginning of our conversation of uh, running into this uh, fellow from SciQuest, I believe was the name of his business, where he had deliberately in- endeavored to uh, invoke your presence, and there you are knocking at the door. Uh, it could have been a wonderful opportunity for collaboration, but uh, it became a missed opportunity, I suppose, because of various subconscious factors. Some of it may have been that, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the initially, the, I don't think I felt fear initially. It was more like disorientation. Yeah. I was thinking about, I thought I came here purely by myself, but apparently not. So there's a little of that. Uh, I think it was more a pragmatic issue of we were in the process of raising funds and he was in the process of raising funds in a very different way for a different purpose. So our, our directions as a nonprofit, we couldn't collaborate too closely with a, with a for-profit because it would throw off our entire financial mm. status. So that was part of it as well. I I see. Well, Dean Radin, it's been a real pleasure having this discussion with you. You're doing very important work uh, for the field of parapsychology, and I'm sure uh, you have more books to write and uh, more research to do. So I hope we can uh, have future discussions and uh, keep up with uh, all that you're doing as well. I'd be happy to come back. Thank you, Dean. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.